Hey guys, welcome to our first episode of uh, ElastiCloud's podcast. Yeah. And uh, we haven't quite named it yet, but um, it's most likely going to be ElastiCast. Um, it's now, right? <laughs> it is now. <laughs> executive decision number one. Yeah, or executive, not a decision. Executive <laughs> yeah. default. Uh, so I'm Richard. I'm Andy. And we're Richard and Andy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's, uh, it's nice to be doing one of these. Um, I have spent months and months listening to my son, um, listen to his podcasts. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I said to Andy one day, I said, we've got to have one of those. Yeah. And so, uh, so. Uh, After we, you uh, explained what one of those was, <laughs> got me into the 21st century. Oh, crikey. Yeah. I am going to, the day, the day that we put this online, right. And Aaron sees this, yeah. you know, he's literally going to be cursed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to tell all of his mates. We've got a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. It's the, it's the link on Spotify. Um, no, anyway, so, uh, you know, first of all, thanks to um, Gabriel, our producer, who's uh, sorted all of this out for us. Yeah. Uh, hopefully this is going to be the first of many, if uh, if everybody likes this. So a um, little bit of introduction about us. Um, uh, so my name is Richard Conway. Um, I founded, with Andy, a company called ElastiCloud, and I'm both an Azure Most Valuable Professional, um, which is uh, Microsoft's cloud, Azure, as probably and hopefully most of you who are listening know, um, and uh, and a Microsoft regional director. And so, a lot of uh, a lot of the content that we're going to present is uh, is all about the things that we see day to day. Some things really weird and funny about the cloud. We've got a really strange way of looking at it after a decade, yeah. and uh, yeah, we we make lots of light of it. Um, so, handing over to Andy to say the same thing as me. Yeah, well, I'm a clone of Richard. Um, <laughs> no, but we've been we're doing this for ten years as ElastiCloud, and before that, we met uh, whilst we're working at Microsoft, right? So, um, and before that, we've both been doing a lot of um, blog creation and things like that, community efforts um, in the early days of the cloud. And I guess it's fair to say we've seen it change a huge amount over those uh, years. And some of the fundamental philosophy, I think, as well, changing as to why you use the cloud. And, um, yeah, I kind of wanted to maybe just have a chat about some of that stuff, you know, from it's just a place to put your your app uh, that wasn't on your own servers to actually fundamentally changing it, working at scale, working around scale bottlenecks, and what that really means in the 21st century when, you know, we can't necessarily just get away with burning loads and loads of electricity just to spin inefficient applications. So, yeah, some interesting stuff there. Yeah, yeah, very, very true. Um, and, uh, you know, the I think one of the things is that as these new sort of corporate ethos come into play, you know, it just developers, architects, you know, anybody with a technical role, right, is just lumbered with more stuff to do. <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, green is more stuff to do. But I think that um, it's probably worth breaking it down, actually. Because yeah, it's really, it's a fascinating point, isn't it? Because... Yeah, previously it's you know make your application more performant. It's uh, reduce the time it takes to load a page. It's make sure you can have more customers on your website before it goes wrong on a on a Black Friday or something. And then all of a sudden the language changes and it's now be more sustainable. Well, what does that mean when you're thinking about CPU utilization and you know gotcha. how many how much RAM how much data you can fit in memory before you run out of RAM? Those sort of things that you know were traditionally skilled as technologists and suddenly we have to think about this new terminology yeah let's break that down mm. yeah i mean i think you know i think for me the um 
I mean, I'll, maybe maybe let maybe let's start with our journey, mm. Elastic Cloud, in all of this. Because um, I think it'd be probably quite interesting for people too. Because Andy and I, Andy and I run a business now of like two hundred plus people, and I, I sort of see us as tech from the top. Um, actually, that's quite a nice, yeah, nice name. Be a good name. Yeah, tech from the top. Yeah. yeah so um, most times we are being hassled to make management decisions uh, because that's all we're good for these days. And it will literally disappear <laughs> for days on end because he's making this uh, fantastic piece of software. I keep calling it a beautiful piece of software because yeah. it it's so pretty. Yeah, that's because we've got Alvaro doing all that really pretty <laughs> stuff. I don't do the CSS. Oh, but it is. It's, it's really beautiful, it. isn't it? it is, yeah. You know, um, it's called Intelligent Spaces. And, um, you know, whilst it's, uh, whilst it's, you know, mainly around IoT and digital twins, you've got sustainability pack, haven't you? Which is yeah, what we're talking about. Yeah, that's right. And so what that what that app's trying to do is just understand <laughs> space that businesses use and um, it, trying to use like modern technology to digitize some of the things that are still pretty pretty manual. And um, and I guess one of the things that we look at on intelligent spaces is as a side effect of managing your building better, what things can you learn about that space that previously you had to have a little guy with a, a clipboard going around and, and sort of checking on things, you know, once a year. And if we're going to automate that and properly digitize it, can we do things like all the time? Can we ubiquitously understand our space? Like, like all the time in every little corner of every little room, can we understand its energy use? Can we understand energy use based on the number of people who are in there? So like energy efficiency and things like that. Um, and can we then take that on a, on a journey to say, hey, if we understand every space of, that a business is involved in that's only being used because the business is functioning, can we understand that carbon footprint all the way up, bubbling all the way up to a business's carbon footprint? And obviously it's not, it's not actually that straightforward because that's only one aspect. That's just um, the space that, that they occupy. It doesn't really the supply chain is different. The commuting of the people to those spaces is a little bit different. And there's a lot of complexity around the edges, but you know, technology starts to tackle some of those problems by giving us tools, um, at least in some areas. And I remember a while ago, because now our business is large and boring, we, we, we have to fill in large and boring forms. And last year you had to fill in, well, we had to fill in, but I'll let you do it because I'm nice <laughs> like that. Um, our first proper sustainability report, right? Um, and it was, it was something that you spent a lot of time doing yeah. and was actually difficult because the data that you would otherwise want to just press a button and have at your fingertips was not really something that you can gather very easily. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a really good point, actually. And, uh, you know, there's this... Um, I remember looking at this thinking, I am actually going to put some effort into this, but if I... You know, if we as a company didn't know so much about data and I didn't know the right questions to ask, all I would have been able to do for these government things was to make it all up. Yeah. So, I mean, it does, it really does tell you something that in this modern age, right, where you can't, where you can't even work out, right, what your carbon footprint is as yeah. a business or even as an individual, you know, it's weird, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it, and it, it, it if we're going to, informed with this great conversation with the, the team at Sustainability Studios mm -hmm. and Greener Data, um, which is another one of our family of, of, uh, of companies. And, and it, in that they're very, very fascinated by measurements <coughs> and data when it comes to sustainability. Um, 
we had this really great conversation about how do we empower people and it led us down a, a pathway of thinking about gamification didn't it, around how do we um, put tools in people's hands to try and lower their overall footprint because it, it's a it, it seems to be something that sustainability as a goal seems to be something that we don't collaborate on very well we all take personal responsibility for doing certain things but then as a team and as a company there's no real way of us sharing all that info so there's some really interesting conversations that we had there yeah no no I, I yeah I, I remember I mean the team sort of hid themselves away there were about 10 of them they did a hack and yeah. you know within three days we get this this scoped emissions dashboard which yeah. was crazy and um yeah just to uh, just to sort of round this off you know the other the other product the other tool that we've built um, is uh, is called uh, is called Sustainability Studio, and you know initially we were looking at these um, ESG metrics, you know mm-hmm. environment, social governance, and you've got a breakdown into the seventeen UN Sustainable Development Goals, these SDGs, and everybody's been using this as a core calculation for years, you know. But what does it really tell you? It's like a it's a veneer, isn't it? It's like a big statistic that doesn't actually tell you really how much carbon you're using, right, what what your risks are. Um, and so I think, you know, the, the closer that we head to, to climate change, you know, companies have been asking us, you know, what is my actual risk? Mm. You know, am I going to have a, um, am I going to have uh, some, some issue um, in the future because I've got a factory in some, you know, in, in, in some location that might have some uh, pressure on it coastally and be flooded or something like that because, you know, climate, climate science isn't exact. Mm. And so this idea, of, uh, this idea of revenue at risk, right, that all of your investments could actually, you know, be, uh, you know, at risk, you know, it's really, really interesting. It has a, has a whole knock-on effect as the whole weather pattern changes, yeah. right? So being able to be in a position to calculate that kind of thing, you know, all the probability of it, right? Mm. Just from an insurer's perspective, from the perspective of where companies will actually want to locate certain types of assets, you know, hugely, hugely important now. Yeah, and when, when we look at some of the things that, that big tech are doing to uh, offset you know, um, their carbon emissions, um, there's some things around there that that we've spoken about that I think are interesting to think it gets very nuanced um, because if, if you are a hyperscale cloud provider which there's a only a couple really um, and and you want to, and you want to be able to say I built a new data center uh, in somewhere um, and and you want to say you use sustainable, uh, sources or renewable sources of electricity uh, in that area well you can plug in or you can buy up because you're incredibly wealthy megacorp you can buy up all of the wind uh, generation in an area or you can buy up all the solar generation in an area and then you can send that into your data center and then you can effectively say now i have a sustainable data center fully powered by green energy but that that provision of energy doesn't come from nowhere right it, it's something that the country has probably invested into maybe through government grants or something over over years and years and um, there's been lots and lots of incentive schemes for like in the UK we know a lot about you know, the generation of solar assets in the UK slowly over a decade and 
And there's been a lot of incentive schemes around there, fixed pricing for selling and exporting energy on the grid and things that help them out, subsidize them effectively along the way. Well, you know, if you come in and just buy all that because you're running a massive data center, you're, you're making everybody else in their homes less sustainable. And that sort of moves us from the environmental part of ESG into the other things, which we don't necessarily think about so much because, like I said the other day, that when I was growing up, it was all uh, green was associated with like the WWF and, and um, you know, Save the Whales and, and Greenpeace. And, and that, I mean, all those wonderful things that happened when I was growing up made us think that, you know, climate change was specifically about the environment and just the environment. But when you more adult about it and you come to look into it, you realize that, you know, it's a more interconnected solution. And if you just say that, well, now all of my com- my computation in data centers is carbon neutral because I'm using the renewable energy, the knock-on effect that the local town now has to use coal power station because that's all there is, mm-hmm. is actually related as well. And it, it's very difficult to track that or even understand that. So, yeah. Yes, it's hugely. I, I would just... Um I was just looking online because uh, the this this idea of um, sets of principles. I'm going to go through these because uh, these Microsoft published these, mm-hmm. and um, there are the principles of sustainable software engineering. Right, and we we had this conversation because in my in my weird sort of um, with my weird sense of humour. Right, I was telling Andy the other day that I find it really funny that in the early early days for sure back in. 2010, Annie and I used to um, used to teach these uh, sessions for Microsoft, and all the rage at the time was high performance computing because you know you remember you had access to all of this compute, yep. you know, and there was no compute with care, compute you know with low carbon or any of that yep. at the time, and you know nobody actually knew what high performance computing was except like some academic specialists and people that were searching for drugs or. <laughs> Um, not drugs, as in yeah. Sorry, I mean, I mean, uh, pharmaceutical <laughs> companies as opposed to like Heisenberg in right? um, yeah, uh, in the TV program that I've just forgotten because now I'm on the spot. Yeah, Breaking um, Bad. Breaking Bad. Yeah. That's the one. Yeah. So, um, so yes, we we don't we don't condone the use of drugs. We don't <laughs> produce them in any factories. It was uh, it was just uh, it was just about <laughs> a, a, a pharmaceutical. Um, pharmaceuticals doing a lot of HPC work which um, to try to do drug discovery and it's done uh, HPC is used to like find the next best nuclear reactor for mm-hmm. nuclear fusion different kinds of materials right but it's it was really for the academic domain and then Microsoft came and provided all of these frameworks really really early on yeah. and Annie and I used to teach people but we didn't used to teach people with anything relevant and they had this application called CPU spinner um, it's just the most hilarious thing because it would you just start this um, oh my god parametric sweep yeah that was that was it. the technique parametric sweep it was basically pushing to fifty nodes um, uh, a a console application with a bunch of parameters and the CPU spinner would count yeah <laughs> and when it finished it would count some more yeah. Um, yeah, and that was how we taught, right? Yep. <laughs> just go, here's the cloud, look, you can make all this wasteful computing with it. It's, it's, it's absolutely brilliant. And in 12 years on, right, we're doing completely the opposite. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's sort of part of the, the whole evolution of, of technology, I think. We, 
we've always historically said that because the next computer we have is going to be more powerful than the last one that we had, we we don't necessarily need to write good software because our software, if it stands still, will get better over time because the next hardware will be faster for us. Oh, yeah. But that does mean that you know, original, you still look at these, these stats, you know, original games that came out are on like kilobytes worth of, of memory and, and they're doing whole game engines. And now, you know, you, the first thing you do when you turn on your Xbox and you, and you, um, you plug in the DVD or whatever is it downloads another six gigabyte update or something. And, and just that kind of inefficiency and, and lack of, of thought around what's being packaged. You know, I'm sure you don't need six gigabytes of download for that. That's the whole game no. again, surely. No, I don't know, what's exactly. going on? Um, but yeah, that's what we do. We're very wasteful with, with our technology across the board and, and in our applications as well. You know, um, we, we used to have lots of different techniques around memory management. And then we went to things where, because that was too hard, for us to look after memory ourselves, we went to these these different programming models with memory management baked in, which is a good idea at times, but how do we guarantee that that's the most efficient? It, it's not specifically that efficient, actually. Um, so then you get to the scenario where, you know, we're teaching this stuff in 2012, something like that, 2012, 2013, something like that, when we're doing this uh, HPC. And... Um, yeah, and, and it's like if you want to do it twice as fast, spin up twice the number of machines, <laughs> right. right? Not not look at the software and use half as many lines of code to do the same thing. Yeah, that's it. That's it. But we will, you know, like the cloud generation of software people have literally been weaned on the fact that they could be software idiots. Yeah. Right? And so, you know, trying to find, trying to find somebody who has all of the efficiencies of writing um, like command and control systems in assembly language, right? Yeah. They're all gone. Yeah. You know, the, there's no thought around that, right? It's just like, it's just like, oh, what can we do to scale? Yeah. You know, yeah. not what can we do to, to be optimal or efficient or. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm just looking through, I'm just looking through this. It's quite interesting, actually. This, these principles of soft, uh, sustainable software engineering, they all come from the Green Software Foundation. I think we're going to be doing a talk on this i'd like to yeah if we can get the um the pub we do we do all of our user group meetings in the pub <laughs> it's a really good venue to to talk and to drink beer um so the first principle is carbon and um talks about the um the unipcc and the paris climate agreement and uh like where companies need to get to uh by 2030 um reducing carbon emissions by 45%, mm. right, to reach net zero in 2050. It seems like really, really unachievable. I mean, yeah. you're, you're doing, you're, you're basically putting some beautiful software on top of building control systems, right? How can you even track that to prove that you're on track? Oh, I mean, there's, there's too many layers of, uh, of lack of data as well for us to, <coughs> to understand. So, um, when we're we're looking at the energy use of a building, if we're lucky enough for that building to have good energy sensors that track everything, which you're not, you tend to get some good ones on the electric circuit, but not the the heating. So it might be gas uh, or something like that. You you won't necessarily know even on the electric, which is complexity. What's the energy mix at that point in time? You know, um, and what we find often with with tech like um, solar energy is that it will produce energy at pretty much the worst time for 
for sustainability. So oh um, you get like in the middle of summer, loads and loads of, of solar power. But if you want to use that electric that comes from that to, to heat your house or something, it's not a great solution because you can't do it in winter so well and you can't do it at nighttime so well. But it does offset things like uh, HVAC, I guess, like like, like cooling particularly, um, which which is where it, it does align well. It aligns well with some of those those problem domains. But when you're inside the building, you, you're likely just to get a total consumption of the whole building. So you don't know which room, which light. You might if you've got a very modern um, like BMS system inside installed, you might be able to work out what energy grids are are active but exactly how much power that's quite rare to see in fact it's pretty unheard of to get that level of granular information and what we try and do as well is to take that level and say look buildings use electricity so we can't stop them doing that but but what they should only really use is electricity where people are um to a a base level maybe of of energy spend is, is necessary to maintain the building but you you don't need the lights on when there's nobody in the building you don't need um, you don't need to have the HVAC on on all floors when people are only on one floor, right? There's ways of understanding that if you can get closer to the data. But it's just even in the most modern buildings, the, the ability to get that data is really rare. So I think there's a lot of work and investment that we need to do everywhere to, to achieve that. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I think, um, you know, another point is this lack of benchmarks in sustainability. And I know this, mm. this is where Sustainability Studio comes in, right? Yeah. How do you tell people, right, that you're even on track if everybody has a different way yeah. of explaining that? Yeah. Um, but, you know, standards bodies, governments, all too slow. Um, I mean, <laughs> dare I say it, because I, I always go into these, um, uh, I always go into these conversations with my parents and it's not, it's not actually politically expedient, you know, to talk about um, the good things to do with Extinction Rebellion, you know, because um, they're like, you're in your 40s now, right? You can't think like <laughs> so, But, I mean, realistically, what they're saying, what, what they say, right, has a lot of common sense. You know, the climate change, right, is, a, is something that surpasses governments, right? So if you had a super national body that was responsible just for this one thing and had overriding decision power, right? It would, it would span beyond um, policies, right? Because we're, you know, governments can't possibly be effective in this place when they ha- in this space where they have so many other things to yeah. to deal with. And from from where we are in sustainability issue, they literally can't even agree. The European Union has ISO standards bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, they're spending a lot of time trying to actually define how, how people and how companies are going to tell the rest of the world what they're doing. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So um, the other thing that the other thing that I wanted to touch on, and it's it's because um, it's because Aaron, my son, came to me the other day and said, "said Dad, all my friends are trading Bitcoin." I oh, said, "Really? <laughs> yeah." I was like, "What?" <laughs> I said. I said, you're not touching that. <laughs> he said, why? Why? I said, because, A, you're too young. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and it's illegal. And, uh, and B, um, you know, this is, the, this is the carbon footprint of Bitcoin. Right? I said, I don't believe in it. You know, I think we've already got other mediums of exchange. And um, so when, um, when we did a bit of, when we did, um, when we talked about this, um, 
Gabriel got some research together for me, and I just want to go through this because I think this is it's probably not going to surprise you, but um, you really, really begin to question how stupid we are as a species when we're <laughs> heading towards this 1.5, 2 degree challenge, and then we do this. Yeah, cool. Okay, so um, per Bitcoin transaction, um, on average, it takes 707 kilowatt hours. 707 kilowatt hours. Yeah. Okay, that's that's a lot of light bulbs on for an hour. It, it, it's crazy. I think I think with that measure, I could um, I could charge my electric vehicle ten times over from empty to full. <laughs> that's <laughs> and one that's for one transaction. Yeah. So that's if I walk up with one of those Bitcoin cards and order an orange juice or <laughs> a pint of beer. Maybe. <laughs> but yeah, any any one transaction costs. That much, yeah. Anyone try? Isn't that absolutely crazy? You could make times filling your car up. Yeah, you could do a thousand miles on that. That's correct. That literally is insane. Yeah, it's absolutely mental, isn't it? And so, um, in twenty twenty one, this cost the planet fifty six point eight million tons of CO two, which is slightly down in fifty. Nine, uh, in 2020, which was 59.9 million tonnes of CO2, um, which strikes me as the fact that the uh, the Bitcoin market, the Bitcoin exchange is so crazily volatile yeah. that we'll see those numbers go down and down as it just doesn't become lucrative for anybody to mine Bitcoin because it's just too expensive and you can't trade it. So... This, I, I, I swear that there's like an economic term for this. It might be like the fallacy of composition or something like that. I vaguely remember this from my uni days, but uh, it's um, it's actually crazy that, um, you know, we're heading for this 1.5 to 2 degree challenge, right? And we're burning so much compute on this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and with Bitcoin being <coughs> fundamentally decentralized, um, there's no central body to say you've got to use renewable energy for this either, yeah. right? So, and for people like um, who are using, uh, who are doing the mining, um, those guys just want to get the cheapest electricity possible to power their, to, so then the return on the electricity, which is their biggest cost, is as low as possible, right? So mm. uh, I imagine now, geopolitically, that might be some um, Russian uh, gas going quite cheap <laughs> here or there, or some Russian oil going oh, spare. Um, and uh, you know that's not great for the that's not great for the for the environment, is it? Just we have this spare capacity, and people are just going to go for the, the lowest the lowest price point, um, which makes it more carbon intensive. And I guess the thing there is that what you said seven hundred and seven kilowatt hours uh, of a mixed energy use, because there's no one saying it has to be all wind power or something yeah. like that. Yeah, that's right. It's I mean it's interesting. So. So electricity is principle two. It talks about um, the difference between um, energy versus power. Mm-hmm. So from your physics days, but it also talks about uh, carbon intensity. Right, carbon intensity is a really, really interesting calculation. It's in grams of CO two equivalent kilowatt hours mm-hmm. um, per kilo- grams equivalent CO two per kilowatt hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember when we were like in the early days, so Microsoft have this dashboard in Power BI to work out what your resource footprint is. 
Um, and I remember the first version of it was a little bit rubbish. It didn't work really. Yeah. Um, but it's much better now. Yeah. And, um, and they use a carbon intensity calculation. And we looked at the same thing. You know, we, we, we sort of went back to understand what, um, you know, what a CPU cycle actually is on a, um, on a, what they called Sandy bridge or is it Ivy bridge or, yeah. um, one of the, one of the Intel Chip CPUs. Sets, yeah. yeah. The chipsets. And we, um, we, we calculated that literally from the ground up to try and work out and then preempt, predict rather what the service costs were. Um, and, um, and carbon intensity factors into this because, um, you know, every country has, has different, um, uh, different capabilities when it comes yeah. to renewables. Yeah. So like, um, quite renewable, but in France, a very high nuclear energy mix, so low carbon intensity there, but with different uh, side effects <laughs> that, you know, uh, you don't just get away with it for free when you're on nuclear, you have the waste to worry about there as well. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, the, what is it that they, they call nuclear baseload? Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. You turn it on, it gives you a huge amount of energy, you can't really turn it off. You, well, yeah, you true. can, but you don't want to. Um, and then you build on top of it, right, for the, the sort of peaking uh, load at the top with the layers of energy. Um, and, and in France, they have a large capability in there. In Germany, they turned it off recently. Um, and in the UK, we're, at the moment, we're thinking about opening up a new sidewell reactor and a few other bits and pieces and sort of hedging a bet a little bit there. I think nuclear is going to be something quite big. Uh, it should be for the future. I, I don't really um, side with people who think that it's too dangerous because I think that the alternative is is really dangerous. You know, we're not going to get away without increasing our base load. Um, the renewable energy, particularly around uh, wind and, uh, and solar, are very curtailable. They're, they're sort of they're very intermittent when it comes to weather patterns, which we we can't necessarily predict for. And so, to have something predictable that you can build a society on, I think is really important for stability. So. Nuclear gives you that. It gives you other problems as well. But, you know, if we take things seriously, it's not a technological problem I don't think we can solve. Mm. I mean, isn't it, isn't it better just, though, to have, you know, things... First of all, first of all nuclear takes a long time to build, especially when you're building... Massively expensive, yeah, yeah. Massively expensive as well, you know. you Like you said, you've got the problem of nuclear waste, right? You've got, yeah. um, you know, nuclear... Um, you know, meltdowns and things like that, which uh, even though they're few and far between, they have happened yeah. um, in Ch- Chernobyl and places like that. Um, isn't, it, isn't it better to, to try and understand how um, battery technology um, can be adapted more to renewables um, and to invest in that? Yeah, there's definitely a big future in, in um, peak shifting, as it were. Right. So I think one of the problems you've got in if you install loads and loads and loads of, of solar is that for people who this is from a investment asset owning kind of perspective. But um, if you make the amount of energy you produce as a country larger and larger around the solar peak, which is sort of the midday where it's sunniest, uh, where the sun's the most intensive, it's over, overhead. Um, what you do is you produce a large amount at that part of the day which drives down the price, just in good old-fashioned supply and demand terms, economics, you drive down the price of electricity at that time of the day so that 
nobody else then wants to go and build more solar because it only makes power when it's really not very good to sell power. So then, then the idea is that we maybe we maybe peak shift that. So we take the peak and rather than sell it at that point, we, we put it into some temporary um, storage capacity. And, and, you know, historically people talk about electricity as, as a non-storable asset because of the complexity of, of doing so. Um, and what, what you can do with more modern technology is you can store it in some of these battery walls and then you can discharge it when the peak uh, or when the power price starts going back up again. And that, that makes much more economic sense for the people building it and allows us to get around the current problem, which is that you only really have solar energy on the grid, the energy grid, around midday. And the rest of the time it, it falls away, particularly mm. in the winter months in, in the northern um, or very far south sort of... Uh, hey, were you just region. about to insult the north? <laughs> uh, I wouldn't dare do such a thing. It's a wonderful place. <laughs> I'll save that for episode two. <laughs> save that for, yeah, okay. But very, very grim. <laughs> um, no, that's that's really interesting. And I mean, we we invested really heavily in building, you know, a couple of models, didn't we? We, yeah. we spent we spent time and money on building this absolutely amazing Basuas model. So any energy companies listening, oh, right, yeah. throw away your models and buy ours because it's much better than yours. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, it genuinely is. It's. I mean, we put loads of effort into this, and um, you know, I've seen, you know, I've seen and spoken to several other energy businesses, and yeah. um, people just play with this calculation. But we know that it can save, you know, a lot of money. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And then, and then there's also the um, uh, the renewables around solar, right? And the dark sky model. Yeah. We put put together. That was pretty interesting. Yeah, absolutely. We started off trying to figure out irradiance, didn't we? That's right, solar irradiance. Yeah, yeah. Well, the best. Well, really, what you could what you could do with with weather to predict accurately the generation and um, and then yields for for the asset owners as well. Um, and we were trying to do things around almost IoT related, right? Um, predictive maintenance for solar panels, mm. so that you wouldn't. Go and uh, you wouldn't go and clean your solar panels or turn them all off on the sunniest day of the year, right? You'd That's it, right. Yeah. If you had to do it during that period, you'd do it on the day when it was forecast to be not very nice in that particular location. Yeah, yeah. One of one of the things that I really enjoyed reading about is some of the innovative business models that people were using. I mean, yeah. you you wouldn't think about it, but like under under solar panels, right, you have um, you have farmers growing mushrooms. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. They've got like an entire mushroom economy on on solar farms. It was, um, I think it was, was it uh, a farmer in the in the Midlands or something in the UK was they had the um, sheep I think or possibly goats. Yes, I heard that as well. So they wouldn't because the problem was well one of the problems with maintaining a solar farm is you have to get the the grass around it cut because um, it gets overgrown. So they just had all these animals running around underneath it God, eating can... the grass. Brilliant. Yeah. I mean, these things are like highly ruggedized as well. You know, even if a, a goat charged at high speed, it would probably knock itself out. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, but um, I guess I guess one of the problems with solar is that the that the technology changes so quickly. Mm. You know, there's a kind of there's a Moore's law, isn't there, almost for silicon, right? Yeah. So you buy something and it becomes 
economically obsolete yeah. in what five ten years yeah it's like the opposite of a first mover advantage right? <laughs> so as soon if you invest the people who come afterwards actually get a better deal and often off the back of like returns um at scale return on investment scale for for people um economies of scale i should say um for, for people who effectively come later they get a better supply chain for um, for, for solar energy, they get better generations of solar. All paid for by the people who came earlier, who are their competitors. So they get a better mm. deal because of the other guys. And it, you know, because it's such a rapidly changing space that it has been noted in that sector that actually you may as well not invest this year, but and then put your money back in the bank and then wait a couple of years and then invest and you get a better <laughs> outcome. Great. So nobody wants to be the first mover yeah. <laughs> because the, it's a lost leader. Yeah. So yeah, it's a. Uh, it's weird, isn't it? Everybody sat there with perfect solar blueprints and uh, never built the things uh, while the planet dried out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I can, I can definitely see the problem with that. Yeah, yeah. We've we've definitely got into some kind of very, very ironic space with. <laughs> yeah, but we've digressed and yep. sticking with sticking with software and cloud, <clears throat> right? Um, Microsoft talk about energy proportionality, which is a measure of the relationship between power consumed in a computer system and the rate of useful work which is done, its utilisation. Um, How would you define useful work? <laughs> I'm thinking of some the, customers. Yeah, I know, I know. I want to be politically correct here. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, it is true. And I, I yeah, useful work. And I think that... One of the one of the things that I was talking about with you the other day is that most um, so so there's like there's like a hierarchy of whinging with cloud costs, isn't there? Right, that goes all the way up to the bill player. Yeah. And but when you're when you're working and you don't have you don't see visibility of that cost, right? You ignore it. Yeah. As a as a developer, so as far as as far as you or I are concerned, well, maybe not us because the bills come to us and we cringe, right, and cry. Um, but you know the you tend to think right when you're using the cloud that it's free sort of is right yeah it's sort of free and so one of the problems that I find is um, that people leave all kinds of shit lying around (laughs) it's like you go into I mean even I went into this with um, you know we were going through um, a resource group the other day with Sandy and Dash like what's this what's this I don't know (laughs) (laughs) you know and people leave, and and the pro- and the problem that I find is that, um, you know, a lot of our customers are actually too scared to um, to turn things off. Yeah. You know, I remember when you, when you and I do that, right? It's sod's law, right? Something we'll go right. What's this virtual machine doing? It looks like it's got zero CPU, right? And then it's catastrophic. We've literally <laughs> we've literally stopped an entire service. Yeah. Deliverable, and then Darren's on the phone to you. Uh, something happened. Yeah, that was Christmas Day last year. I think. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, I remember that. Poor Darren. Oh, he gets the worst <laughs> Sorry, of it, man. doesn't he? Sorry, man. He does get the worst of it. But you know, I do, I do think that a lot of this, right? I mean, can you imagine if we, if you instituted something in some of our larger enterprise customers and said, you know, people who create these services, if they don't turn them off and they're not using anything, right? It would probably cut the bill down by like 20, 30 percent. Yeah. You know, for starters. But like then if you said you gotta pay for your own cloud cost, right? How many people would be more scrupulous yeah, about doing that kind of thing? Yeah. Right? Just think, 
20, 30% of cloud data center emissions gone yeah. overnight. Yeah. Because developers wouldn't be so lazy. <laughs> right. Um, we have had um, a sort of marathon now talking about uh, sustainability. Yeah. There's probably so much we can squeeze into this space, but we're, we want all the next um, podcast episodes. Um, what do we decide? Tech from the top now. Yeah, yeah the, tech, from the, tech from the top. Tech from the top. For we the like next that. 10 minutes until we think of something better. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I think what we're going to do, because this sustainability topic is hugely, hugely complicated. It crosses over so many different things. And um, a lot of people are, are quite passionate about it as well. So mm. we'll invite um, some people who know quite a bit more than we do oh, yeah. um, to talk some sense um, <laughs> in in the future and uh, we'll we'll have a few interviews and the like um, but uh, for now hopefully that will give you a bit of info about how we think and feel about green software yeah good stuff so um, thank you very much um, thanks for listening Aaron I hope it's Aaron <laughs> definitely <laughs> I'm never going to hear the end of this be like dad I've got no friends because of you <laughs> why do you have to do a podcast sorry, oh, terrible Aaron, sorry and, yeah I, I did get the idea from his podcast The, the Misfits which um, which his mum doesn't like him listening to because oh, yeah? yeah they swear too much and they talk about um, they talk about drugs not the pharmaceutical oh. kind and they talk about um uh, they talk about Eastern European sex clubs as well. And that's like, what are you listening to, Aaron? <laughs> this okay. more interesting. Hey. Uh, yeah, so this was my inspiration <laughs> for ours. Well, next episode is going to be really exciting then, I guess. What do you think we should talk about the next episode? Should we give a, because we haven't actually decided yet. And, uh, well, I guess what we'll tend to do is, well, get, Gabriel will probably have about a week or two to, to go and research some crazy facts for us, yeah. um, just like we presented today. But topic-wise, what do you think? Yeah, well, I think that um, it would be really great to stay on, on a similar sort of theme. Maybe you see if we can get a, a guest on who can maybe talk about uh, the Green Software Foundation or something like that. Mm. and um, Or we talk about maybe some of the machine learning models that we've produced in pretty much this space. That'd be, that'd be pretty good to go into, I think. And I really, what I really want to do as well over the next few episodes is, is you know, we're living in a little bit of a bubble. I think um, we're always on the cutting edge and sort of aligned with, with what Microsoft have been talking about a lot. We tend to be just a little bit ahead of them, and then they sort of talk about the same thing just after us. And for us, everything everyone's talking about sustainability. But what I'd like to talk to is people from a little bit further away from our little bubble and who are doing some more traditional enterprise tech or building out products in different spaces and say, you know, how much is sustainability getting through to you? What do you do about it? What have you thought about that? Mm. And just see, you know, how pervasive that is across the sector, really, and get some answers from people. Yeah, I think that would be basically what you're saying is, right, we're going to invite people who actually know what they're talking about so you won't have to listen to us next yeah, time. Yeah, sounds good. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for... Uh, your time and we will speak to you in a couple of weeks cheers, cheers.